I want us to see the sovereignty of God in the burial of Christ. We've gone over the, the death of Christ and the passion of Christ so many times that I think at times we forget that this was truly an event that happened not because the mobs were angry at Jesus, not because the Roman soldiers crucified him along with the Jews. We have to begin to understand that God himself set this whole thing in order. And sometimes we forget that. And I just want to focus in on a couple verses in Matthew 27 as we read um, in verse beginning in verse 57 there to, to uh, verse 60. When it was evening, there came a man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this man named Joseph. We don't know even a lot about where he is from. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that. But it's interesting that he brings this individual up. Matthew does, as well as the other Gospels. And we're going to learn a little bit about Joseph of Arimathea tonight. But I, I want you to understand the perspective in which this whole event takes place. You know, in Isaiah 53... If you look at Isaiah 53, you'll see in verse 9 that it says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was a rich man in his death, speaking of Christ. Now, that prophecy would have been literally impossible to comprehend until the Messiah's burial actually took place. I don't think anybody understood what that was even talking about. And yet, now we can look back and we understand that the Holy Spirit was revealing that before Christ was even on the scene here on earth. And even though Christ's enemies intended to bury him with all the common criminals, we see that God's hand sovereignly overrode that, and he truly was buried in a rich man's tomb. The second prophecy that concerning Christ's that was fulfilled in Jesus' burial was a prophecy that was made by himself. Um, we know in Matthew 12 and 16, and he, he said several times actually, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the son of, the man, a son of man referring to himself may be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the tomb. And a lot of people say, well, there's a lot of controversy about when Jesus was actually crucified. Was it really on Friday? Because that doesn't work out to three days. You have to understand the Jewish day. You have to understand the culture. Uh, when it was evening there, when it says that in our text, it refers to basically a time period between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. And that period, the Jews considered to be the end of the day and the beginning of evening. And it says there it was about the ninth hour or 3, 3 p.m. that Jesus spoke his last words from the cross. And it says that he yielded up his spirit. It was so important that Jesus died on time. It was, I mean, this could have made or, or uh, broke the whole situation here. 
It was imperative that Jesus die several hours before the end of the day. First of all, because of the simple fact that the Sabbath began at 6 o'clock that day. At Friday at 6 o'clock, that's when the next day would begin, and that's considered the Sabbath. And he had to be taken down from the cross before then in order to be prepared for burial and not to uh, really profane the Sabbath. They considered it a, a holy day as they should have. And then second, he had to be buried before the end of that day, that day Friday, in order to be in the, in the earth at least part of those three days. See, in the Jewish culture, as long as he was buried before the next day began, then that counts as a full day. He said, if I said to you, hey, today I went to the beach. Well, I'm here. I'm not at the beach now. That doesn't mean I stayed at the beach all day. That means I spent a period of time at the beach. So when Jesus said, I'm going to be in the earth, in the tomb, three days, basically that's what he's referring to, a portion of that day. That's how it works out, that he was crucified on Friday because he declared that he would be raised on the third day. In John chapter 19, verse 31, John says this, The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, very important. What's that? It's the day before the Sabbath. So that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. In other words, this was a very special Sabbath. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So, simply put, you see God's hand overriding all this stuff. His sovereign hand is involved in not only the death, but the burial of Christ. The fact that the day before the Sabbath proves conclusively that Jesus was crucified on Friday because it says it's the day of preparation. That's Friday. That's before the Sabbath. The Sabbath is on Saturday. Now, a lot of the rabbis and the religious leaders of that day had a lot of crazy rules that they came up with about the Sabbath itself. But... Having said that, don't forget that God did command in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it what? Holy. And among the other things, even food preparation had to be done the day before so that nobody was working on the Sabbath day. They even practice that to this day. Even if you remember in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, uh, 23 the Mosaic law required that the corpse of an executed criminal not be left hanging on the tree all night, but you have to bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is cursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gave you as an inheritance. That wasn't even talking about the Sabbath. But God didn't want bodies hanging on trees overnight. Another thing, that the Lord provided manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness. You remember when he did that? And you remember he gave them a double portion on Friday? Why? So they wouldn't have to go out and collect it on the Sabbath. That's how important the Sabbath day was to the Lord. And so they were very cautious about defiling that very special day. And yet here you see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the ungodly hypocrisy, that they insist that the body of Jesus Christ be taken down before the Sabbath. And yet they had no problems hours earlier 
sending him to the cross. They were meticulous and not wanting to devile the Sabbath at all, having his body hanging on a cross after the day began. And the Romans would not allow a crucified man to be taken down from the cross until he was dead. He had to be dead. And the Jewish leaders requested of Pilate that the legs of these three people who were crucified, the Lord being one of them, be broken. And the reason is, is because when you're hanging on a cross, I saw today on the news, I think it said 27 people in the Philippines were nailed to crosses today. Literally nailed to crosses. They didn't die, but they're up there hanging, and there's big spikes through their hands and their feet. I mean, crazy. But the way you die on the cross is not from the wounds that you sustain from the nailing. You die of suffocation because you can't hold yourself up there for only so long. And your legs get weak, and you fall down, and it crushes your rib cage, and you literally suffocate to death. So an easy way to get these guys to die a little bit quicker so that they didn't upset the Jews because the Sabbath was coming up in a couple hours. The Jews said, hey, send some guards over and they take a big wooden mallet, if you can imagine this, and they haul this thing back and they just smash the side of their legs and just crush them, snap them right in two. And the people can't, who are crucified cannot lift themselves up anymore and therefore they suffocate within a few moments. Well, it says in John 19.34, one of the, one of the uh, as, as the soldiers went by Christ, they broke the one thief's leg and they broke the other criminal's leg. And yet they looked at Christ and he was already dead. And it says in John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. Once again, you see God... Fulfilling his scripture. The sovereign hand of God allowed Christ to die before the soldiers were able to break a bone in his body. Because in Psalm 34, 20, it says of the Lord, he keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Amazing. Soldiers didn't know what they were doing. They had no idea what Psalm 34, 20 said. If they did, they probably would have broken them. Just for spite. And so you see that God is sovereignly overseeing these things. Edersheim, a biblical scholar, says that soldiers would administer what they called a death stroke. And what that was is they'd take a spear, and as the scripture says, they would jab the spear into the ribcage and into the heart of that individual. Just to make sure that they were going to, or they were, dead. Um, in Zechariah twelve twenty, another scripture in the Old Testament, it says this: "They took, they shall look on him who they what pierced." Interesting. The soldiers already acknowledged that Christ was dead. He had really no human reason to administer this death stroke with a spear. But you know what? God's word will be fulfilled. And the resulting wound was so so deep that Jesus could tell Thomas to place his hand into it. So you're not talking of a little, you know, prick in the side. You're talking of a gaping wound. Wound that was open in the side of his, near his heart. 
And so just as prophesied, God made sure that no bone in Jesus' body was broken and his side yet was pierced. In Psalm 69.20, it says this. This is a messianic psalm. David wrote, Reproach has broken my heart. And some medical experts believe that under extreme circumstances, it's possible for the human heart to literally explode from emotional strain. I mean, we're not talking about a heart attack. We're talking about the, the, blo- the, the, the heart itself literally exploding. And it causes blood to spill over into the pericardium surrounding the heart. And it's mixed with the lymphatic fluid that's surrounded there. And that just spilled out when he was pierced. Well, as soon as the victim was dead, they would take him down from the cross. And usually the Romans, they had no respect for dead bodies. None at all. Especially those of criminals and those who were uh, crucified. And usually they would just take him out and they'd throw him in a pile of heap with other criminals and just a common grave. That's exactly what they would do. Or sometimes they'd throw him out on a garbage heap that was burning outside the city known as Gehenna. And there there's just this ongoing, I don't know if when I was growing up we used to take our trash to the dump. What we would burn in the backyard in a big barrel, we'd burn. But then occasionally we'd have bigger items. We'd have to go drive down to the dump, and we would dump our trash in this big place. And it was just this stench, and it would just this kind of, in the summer, it would be humid. And you could see the cloud of yuck just hanging over, and some of it would be burning. And when I read this, that's what I think of. This smelly place outside the city, these smoldering dead bodies. That's usually what the Romans would do with these bodies. Well, by the time Jesus died, even John apparently had left Golgotha. And it says that only a few faithful women were surrounding there and remained. Obviously, they weren't able to care for the body themselves, especially in the short time remaining before the end of the day. And they had no burial place for Jesus. So the Jews would have been totally right to take the body and just... Keep it over in the trash. But it's interesting to me that at the exact moment necessary, God moved in the heart of a godly man, and we see that his name here is Joseph of Arimathea. It says there, who had become a disciple of Jesus. In this case, the Sabbath was considered to to begin it at 6 p.m. Had Joseph asked for the body any earlier, Jesus would not have been dead. If he would have come any later, he wouldn't have had time to prepare the body for burial before the Sabbath began. He wouldn't have been able to do that. But it says here that Joseph was a rich man. And that fulfilled the prophecy we read in Isaiah 53, 9. But he was also a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. And it also says of Joseph that he was waiting or he was seeking the kingdom of God in Mark 15, 43. And it tells us in Luke 23, 50, contrary to other council members, Joseph of Arimathea was a good and righteous man. That's what it explains him to be, a good and righteous man. And he had not consented to the plan and action of the rest of the council to condemn and execute Jesus. We don't know a lot about that city, Arimathea. 
Obviously, Joseph would have had his burial site close to his house. So Arimathea must have been in proximity of Jerusalem. Some people believe that it's the ancient city of Ramah, a few cities north of Jerusalem. But at some point in the past three years in Joseph of Arimathea's life, he began to follow Christ. That's what disciple means. It means a follower of Christ. Now, interestingly, John, in his gospel, in chapter 19, verse 38, it says this of Joseph. It says that he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. That word disciple there in our text could be translated was discipled to or by Jesus. In other words, he spent time with Christ. It may have been from afar, but he spent time with Christ. He was a follower. He was a learner of Jesus. He must have heard our Lord preach on occasion. He must have heard him teach. He must have heard him see, do some of the miracles that we've learned through the gospel of Matthew that he did. But he was what you might call a secret disciple. And a lot of people get on Joseph because of that. In other words, they build a whole message around how you shouldn't be a secret disciple. And, oh, shame on Joseph. Shame on Joseph. I I tend to take a different look at this. Joseph followed Christ. He learned from Jesus at a distance because of his position. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader of the day. I'm sure that he heard of Jesus first as he sat on the council and they began to talk about this man, this man who calls himself the Messiah. What are we going to do about him? He's threatening our religion. And when he was able to listen to him preach, I think he was convinced that Christ was who he said he was. But to have made his allegiance to Christ public, not only would it have cost him his place in the Sanhedrin, but it probably would have cost him his economic, social, family, welfare as well. Everything. Interesting thing about Joseph, if you, if you look at Mark fifteen forty three, it says that Joseph gathered up courage. He gathered up courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I mean, this is a guy that sits on a religious council that just condemned Christ, gave him over to the Romans to to be crucified. He's not just an ordinary Jew. And it says that he gathered up the courage. And I thought about that. And I thought, yeah, Joseph followed Christ at a distance. But when he was needed most, God obviously gave him the courage to do what he had to do. We learn from Mark... In, in Mark chapter 15, 44 to 45, Pilate wondered if he was dead by that time, and he summoned the centurion and questioned him as to whether he had already, was already dead, and asserting from his centurion that he granted the body to Joseph. Usually, they would only give the body to a family member or throw it in the garbage heap. Joseph wasn't a family member. Once again, you see the hand of God working and moving. I'm sure that Pilate didn't want to tick the Jews off anymore. So he figured, okay, we just got to get rid of this body before the Sabbath begins. Hey, you want to take it? Take it. He's dead. Go for it. I bet you he was glad to get rid of the body of Christ. Thinking, you know what? This is over. It's done with. 
And without asking for an explanation, which is interesting, Pilate immediately ordered that Jesus' body, even though he wasn't family, be given to Joseph. I bet you when Joseph first went to Pilate, he thought, you know, (laughs) I don't even know why I'm going there to ask. I know he's not going to give me the body. This is silly. And yet God gave him the courage to do it because he had a great love for Jesus. And it led him, I think, to feel and to face the wrath of his fellow council members, his friends, as well as the wrath of Pilate in order to even offer to take the the body of Christ. See, the Lord had sovereignly caused the Jewish leaders to do their part in demanding that the bodies be taken down from the cross before the end of the day. He had caused Pilate to grant that permission. He caused Joseph to request for the body. And he caused Pilate to grant that permission once again. So the Lord caused Joseph to secure, to prepare, to inter the Jesus body before Friday evening ended. And what's funny is none of these people knew that they were fulfilling prophecy. Not one. Joseph, I don't believe, was in a hurry thinking, oh man, I've got to do this before so we can fulfill it. No, he didn't know it. He was just being used of God. Isn't that what it is sometimes when you're being used of the Lord? You don't even know it. You have no idea. You're just being faithful to his call and you're just out there doing what he wants you to do. And I say that because sometimes when you're serving the Lord, it can be discouraging, can it? Because you don't see immediate results. Maybe you've been praying for that lost relative or maybe you've been praying for that coworker, or, or spouse or whatever it is and you, know, you just don't see God working. And sometimes you just want to go, you know, I don't even know if this is going to work. God, where are you? And yet God is always working. And sometimes he works in ways we don't even see, we don't even understand, just like these people. He used them and they didn't even have a clue what was going on. Even godly Joseph did what he did, I believe, for personal reasons. It seemed only right that an innocent man in whom he had placed his faith at least get a respectable burial. There's no indication that Joseph was even aware that he was doing God's will, much less fulfilling Scripture. He didn't hurry because he was afraid of violating the Sabbath. That wasn't why. Because he had already defiled the Sabbath. He had already went before the, the, the praetorium to see Pilate. He already blew it. And he was about to defile himself further when he had to go pick up and touch a dead body. That was just unheard of for someone of his stature. So he wasn't trying to hurry up and do this so that he could get it done by the Sabbath time began and all that. He wasn't trying to do that. He he was moving quickly because you know what? God was causing him to move quickly. He was under God's divine plan and hand. And according to God's timetable. Isn't that a great place to be when when you're at a place where you know you're supposed to be there, but you also know you're here when God wants you to be there. We just moved our daughter from Jacksonville, Florida, to Fort Belvoir in Washington, D.C. And it was a lot of work. and Just a lot of stuff went on. But the interesting thing is I see God's sovereign hand over the whole thing. 
you know, you know me, I'm kind of a guy that likes to get things done, right? I don't like to mess around. Well, the week I got there, we, we baptized, I baptized Crystal and Will at their church on a Wednesday night. That next, um, that Thursday, the pod that we had to pack up came. Pod came, and I'm rolling my sleeves up. We got to get packing, but we still got to live in this house, right? So, I mean, we can't pack everything yet. So I'm trying to push and pack and get all this stuff done. And Monday they came, and I think it was Monday or Tuesday, they picked up the pod, and basically everything was gone. We had, I think, two mattresses left. So somebody had to sleep on the floor <laughs> or the couch or whatever was, was left in there. We ended up sleeping on the floor with the kids. and I mean, just uncomfortable. And, you know, and that went on until the next Sunday morning we left. And so, you know, as, as the, the week wore on and, and we're living under these weird conditions, not having anything in the house and, and all this stuff, you know, I'm telling Crystal, you know, let's, what's the big deal? Let's leave on Saturday. Let's go on Saturday. Saturday morning, we'll be up there. We can even go to church on Sunday morning at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And, you know, we can do that with you and stuff. She's like, no, 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 we, we, the pod's getting there on Tuesday. I got this planned out. We're going we're gonna to go Sunday morning. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be traveling on Sunday morning. I just don't want to do it. I want to be in church. No, no, no. We're going to go Sunday morning. We're leaving at 5 o'clock. Okay, fine. So, get in the car Sunday morning. We're traveling up. We get closer to up through some of the states. We're going through South Carolina. See some things. You know, it's like trees are misplaced. And I'm thinking, what the heck's going on? This is weird. And literally, we passed through a section. I don't know if it's South Carolina or North Carolina. I can't remember anymore where there was just major devastation. I mean, we had to drive. The traffic was literally stopped on the freeway because there's trees and pools and homes. Our trailers just thrown around these fields like little toy cars. And we finally pulled off the road, and I asked the guy that was a PG&E worker or whatever they call him back, I said, well, what? He goes, oh, you didn't hear about the tornado that came through here yesterday? Right about this time? I'm going, whoa. See, if I had my way, where would we be? We'd be right on I-95 in the midst of this tornado with a Suburban and a little Jetta and a big U-Haul trailer. Not a good scenario. But you know what? God had it all planned out. We get to D.C. Crystal, they they finally get to go and check out their house. Promised them a four-bedroom house, you know, in this certain area. Well, they get there, and it's not a single-dwelling home. It's an attached house, kind of in a row. She went in and looked at it. Small little rooms, three rooms, little rinky-dinky kitchen. She's going, I can't live here for three years. So I called her, hey, do you get the house yet? Because you know, I want to unpack the trailer and kind of get going here. You know, I got to get out of here by Thursday. This is Monday. And she said, well, I just saw the house again, and I am not happy. It's just too small. It's, I don't know how we're going to live. I don't know. You know, and she's kind of set crying. And so Will finally made another call. And what seemed like was going to just be a devastating, horrible time. So I'm thinking, I don't want to leave my daughter and family in this situation with this miserable house and, you know, under these conditions. And Will made a call, and the lady said, well, we do have this one house that you can look at if you want. Will's like, hey, anything. You know, I just got to make my wife happy. You know, I mean, something's got to be better than this. And it was a brand new house, the one that they looked at at first, but it was just real small. And so we went to this house. It was built in the 1930s. Brick house, probably almost 3,000 square feet. 
four bed, huge house. I mean, I got lost as we were moving into it. See, God had this whole thing arranged beforehand. And yet, sometimes when we get in situations in our life, we begin to wring our hands, at least I do, and begin to worry, and we begin to wonder, oh, no, we've got to do something because God's not doing anything. And yet, God is working behind the scenes, beloved. He's got everything under control. And even when he could take somebody like Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple, somebody who followed Christ at a distance, and really use him in a very dynamic way. It said that Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He had to go get that linen somewhere. He's a rich man. And he laid him in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. Rich men, they have servants. But it's interesting, because of his devotion to Christ, it says that Joseph carried the body himself. He could have had his servants do it. But you see a relationship here. John reports that Nicodemus, who is another distant follower of Christ, prominent Pharisee, most certainly a member of the Sanhedrin, it says that he joined Joseph at the tomb. And what he do? He bring, He brought... A mixture of myrrh and aloe and about 100 pounds in weight of these spices that they would wrap the body in and kind of mummify it. And it says they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings and spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. They didn't embalm the bodies. They simply encased them. Stanley Gundry makes this comment and I find this Just so neat the way he puts this. He says, the disciples who had openly followed Jesus during his lifetime ran away at the end. But the two, speaking of Joseph and Nicodemus, who had kept their faith secret while he was alive, came forward publicly to give him an appropriate burial. Uh, I think we need to learn to understand how God uses different people at different times. We find two examples here, Joseph and Nicodemus. We don't know a lot. The scripture doesn't tell us a lot about either one. But what we do know is significant. We know they were both rich and prominent men. They were both members of the Sanhedrin. They believed in Jesus, at least to some degree. They followed him. Nicodemus had confessed at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he was a teacher of God. And Joseph Amarathea was described as a disciple, a good and upright man. Somewhere along the line, God opened the eyes of those two men. And you know what? I'm here to tell you tonight that God can do the same thing with you. If you look on the Christ and you look on the passion of Christ... The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, beloved, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. In other words, we serve a God who who doesn't tell us, you know what, you have to get cleaned up, then you can have a relationship with me. That's not what he says. He says, no, I'll clean you up. You just come to me and I will clean you up. See, it's in the death of Christ that we see God's love. Maybe you're holding back. Maybe you don't know whether you're a true follower or believer or not. 
But you know what? At any point in time, you can come forward. You can come out of the dark because he died for you. He paid the price for your sin. He bore the anguish of the cross for your salvation. I mean, how can you fail to love someone like that? He's not there to condemn you. He's there to save you, to cleanse you. And if you do love him, how can you fail to confess him to whoever you come across as a believer? How can we walk out of these doors to a lost and dying world and not tell them about the love of Christ and the forgiveness that we have because of his sacrifice? See, the Christ you are asked to follow is not some humiliated Jewish preacher, but he's the Lord of glory. He doesn't merely ask you to come to him. That's not what he does. He commands it. He tells you to turn from your sin and to come to him openly for salvation. That's what he wants. I ask you tonight, will you do that? Will you come to him? Will you trust him? I truly see the hand of God sovereignly. Not only the death, but the burial of, resurre- of, of, of Christ. Sunday we'll be looking at the glorious message of Easter, but we're going to be looking at it through the death of Christ, through the words of Christ on the cross. In Revelation twenty two seventeen it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty... Let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Joseph of Arimathea and even Nicodemus who came to Christ. They followed Christ at a distance, but at the appropriate time when you moved and worked in their heart, they came out and they they really stood up for you and they took a chance. And they provided what was needed, not even knowing that they were being used of God to fulfill not only prophecy, but scripture. Father, I pray that you would use us in that way. That, Lord, that you would use us in this community to quicken hearts to understand the gospel, that we would be faithful to confess you before a lost and dying world. That we wouldn't be like Joseph of Arimathea and the fact that he was fearful of the Jews. That's why he wouldn't confess Christ publicly. But we would be bold in our confession. Because you haven't given us the spirit of fear, but of boldness. And we pray that as we're filled with the spirit that we would make an impact here on this peninsula for your glory. That we would see many souls come to Christ through the glorious gospel of Christ. And Father, I pray now that you would just continue to prepare our hearts for our communion time. If there's any here who has yet to place their faith or trust in you, I ask that they would cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin and to turn to you, that you would forgive me. I have nowhere else to go. Pray that that prayer, Lord, I know that you will answer. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.